0: Have you ever misjudged someone? Have you ever thought that they weren't worth the effort or that you could never learn anything from them only to realise that you had underestimated them? Uh, Well that would be an awful thing to do to a fellow human being but the verses in front of us this morning tell us that we can do the same thing with the Son of God himself. And while that's true above all of the unbeliever, it can also be true of us as people who say we believe in Jesus Christ. So whatever your spiritual status this morning, God's call to you is the same and it's found in the first three words of verse 13, behold my servant. Let the million and one things you think about on an average day fade into the background and behold God's servant, the Lord Jesus Christ because there is nothing more important that you could think about. And we're going to try and follow God's command to behold his servant under three headings this morning saying firstly why we should behold the servant. He is ignored. Or if you just want uh, want to remember one word for each heading this morning, remember the last word. So in this case, the word ignored. Why we should behold the servant, he is ignored. In the first two verses of, of Isaiah 53, we're told that something is going to happen which no one would have expected. In the previous chapters of Isaiah, God has been telling the people that he's going to do something for them. And he's going to do something for them that they cannot do for themselves. And God tells them how he's going to do it, that it will be through his mighty arm. Boys and girls God is a spirit that means he doesn't have a body but when God talks about his arm it talks about how he's going to to work powerfully and demonstrate his power for us and so we have verses and they're listed on your handout which talks about what God is going to do through his arm Isaiah 40 verse 10 behold the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him Chapter 48 verse 14 we're told the Lord shall perform his purpose in Babylon and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. Babylon and the Chaldeans in the Bible representing everything that is against God. In chapter 51 verse 5 God says my arms will judge the peoples but also that the coastlands hope for me and for my arm they wait. In other words, the revealing of God's arm when it comes is going to lead to nations being converted. And so in this section of Isaiah's prophecy, we've had a building focus on God's arm. And now at last, in verse 1 of chapter 53, the arm of the Lord is revealed. That is, God shows us, how he's going to bring about all these amazing promises but it's not what anybody was expecting. Uh, Look back to, to verse 10 of chapter 52 the last mention of God's arm the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God and so in light of that we're expecting something big and dramatic but then we begin chapter 53 and we learn that God's arm God's demonstration of his power will be seen in his servant who will be anything but spectacular look at verse 2 for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground that's speaking about the servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says he'll grow up before God. He, he, he will grow up in God's presence when he's on earth. But, but it won't look like that to those around him because he'll be like a young plant or a shoot something so small and insignificant that a gardener could just snip it off without noticing. Uh, something that, that doesn't look like it will become anything important. Uh, something that looks as if it will struggle for life itself, never mind have any influence on, on what's around it. In other words, Jesus didn't, didn't burst into this world like a mighty oak tree, but like a tiny shoot. Uh, a tiny shoot in your garden that you could stand on without noticing or look at the second half of verse 2. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. There's probably not so much a comment on Jesus' physical appearance as on the sheer unspectacularness of his coming. There was nothing about Jesus about his appearance, about his coming, uh, to make people think that he was anything, anyone special. There, there, there was no outward show. Uh, someone had said the Jews wanted a king, but they got a carpenter. And so when people looked at Jesus, they thought, well, there's nothing really here to look at. There's nothing special, nothing to write home about. And it's the same today. People around us get on with their lives without a a thought about Jesus Christ. They take his name on their lips only as a swear word. They think that they know what they need in life. They need money, they need health, they need success, they need a happy family. And Jesus doesn't guarantee any of those things. He's not like a politician on the election trail telling people what they want to hear. And so he's ignored. If you're looking for something flashy, something that's going to make the world sit up and take notice, then the gospel of Jesus isn't it. But that's exactly the way the Bible said it would be. When people reject and despise Jesus, it's all written here. And yet this call to behold God's servant doesn't come primarily to those outside the church but to those inside it. Could it be uh, that as you come this morning perhaps planning to sit at the Lord's table that Jesus has been relegated to the sidelines of your life. Yes you're still coming to church but apart from that could it be in the busyness of life the Son of God doesn't get much of a look in. It's so easy to be influenced by, by the, the, the att- attitude and pattern of the world around us. Uh, we too can be sucked into a mindset that would squeeze out Jesus. Uh, we're dragged along by what's important in the world's eyes. The, the 24-7 news cycle, the latest notifications on our phones, uh, whatever it is that everyone else is talking about. And we can forget about the one who is most important of all. Maybe your life does stand out as different uh, to some extent from those around you. Maybe you've been making church a priority, not just coming along, but serving at home, uh, perhaps even diligently reading your Bible. And yet even these things aren't meant to be an end in themselves, Uh, but rather through them uh, 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 and by them God calls you to behold his servant knowing Jesus is to be the goal of all our church activities that, that we would know him better that we would share the knowledge of him with those around us but how often are you taking time just to pause and behold him David writes in Psalm 63 about how he remembers God on his bed and meditates on him in the watches of the night. And yet if we wake in the night or first thing in the morning, do we we just grab our phones or, or turn on some background noise and not behold God's servant? Above all, we should be beholding him in church each week. When we go home, our, our hearts and our conversations should be impacted by what we've seen of Him. Yes, we'll we'll talk of other things, but but surely, surely we uh, there needs to be a place to talk of what we've what we've seen of Him in His Word. When we come home from church, uh, surely our talk shouldn't primarily be about who was or wasn't there, or. or or what we we learned that folk had been up to during the week and it's a good thing to have those relationships to to develop those relationships to to know and care about what's going on in each other's lives that is a good thing, it is a strength but let's not forget that the, the primary reason we're here is to behold God's servant The point of preaching is not firstly even to give life lessons but to lift up Jesus and however imperfectly that is done by those of us who preach there will be scraps that you can gather up and turn over in your mind both, as you, you sit here and as you go out into the world you might behold God's servant. The Lord's Supper gives us an opportunity to stop and refocus our lives on what's really important. And so if you have been ignoring God's servant in the busyness of life, if he has been pushed to the margins, if you find yourself going after whatever is newest, whatever shouts the loudest or what beeps the most, then confess it, repent and go from here with a renewed commitment to behold God's servant. So, firstly, this morning, why we should behold God's servant. He is ignored. But then, secondly, what we see if left to ourselves, he is despised. So, first, ignored. Secondly, despised. The servant of the Lord is ignored the glorious son of God isn't given a second thought the one person who can mend our broken lives and fix this broken world is marginalised because he doesn't live up to what the world expects of a deliverer and yet in verse 14 of chapter 52 and verse 3 of chapter 53 it gets even worse because he's not just ignored is he He's also despised. Not only does he lack anything that might attract our attention to him, he's also facing things which horrify most of those who do look to him or look at him. In verse 14, uh, chapter 52, when people look at him, they're astonished. Uh, and that word it means more than surprised it's more often translated as appalled rather than astonished Uh, those who looked on Jesus they weren't just shocked they were horrified Uh, and of course what is now firmly in view is the cross we're told that his appearance was beyond human semblance Jesus had been beaten so much before he even made it to the cross and so when people looked at him their question wasn't so much is this the servant of God we've been waiting for? Uh, their question was is he even human? In verse 3 people turn their faces away from him as if he's stricken by some repulsive disease sometimes we'll see on TV someone being portrayed suffering a horrific injury and even if, if we know it isn't real we perhaps still instinctively turn away from it we can't watch it and yet this is no acted out scene this is human and satanic cruelty at its worst and those who see it can hardly bear to watch And for those around the cross there is little sympathy because for many this was the final proof that Jesus can't be the Messiah. As the Apostle Paul would put it the cross is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. For the Jews it's a stumbling block. They can't get past this. This wasn't the sort of Messiah they expected or wanted. They couldn't believe in a crucified Messiah. For for the Gentiles it's just folly to think that an execution could achieve anything. Verse 3 tells us that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It that, that could be translated to say he was a man of suffering and acquainted with sickness. In fact, if we just did verse 3 by itself, we, we might simply think that this man was undergoing physical suffering or sickness. But then those same two words are used again in verse 4 to show that it was in fact our suffering and our sickness that he bore. Obviously not physical sickness, but the sickness of sin which is ultimately the root of all other sickness. And so the world, summed up in the two categories of Jew and Gentile, looks at the cross and despises what it sees. It rejects the one hanging there. It wants nothing to do with him. Verse 3 closes with an accounting term. We esteemed him not. All the human eye sees and all the human mind understands when it looks at the cross makes the sum total of zero. Someone has pointed out that this word completes Isaiah's total diagnosis of the human condition when left to ourselves. Verse 2 reveals the bankruptcy of human emotions. By nature, we see no beauty to desire in Jesus. Verse 3 shows how our wills are unable to choose the right thing. By nature, we despise and reject Him. And then at the end of verse 3, we see how corrupted our minds are. By nature, we come to the conclusion that He's nothing. Our emotions, our wills, and our minds. When you put it all together it shows how, how totally unable we are to see Jesus for who he really is unless God works in our hearts. And so as we prepare to come to the Lord's table we're told to examine ourselves. Has God done, done this work to, to change your, your emotions, your wills and your mind? It's not an easy question to answer in and of itself. But the Bible does give us an objective criteria to measure it by. And the most important question you must answer is what think ye of Christ? When you behold God's servant what do you see? Do you see Jesus as the most fair among men's sons? Can you say whom have I in heaven but you? And there is no one on earth I desire beside you. Is your hope for heaven completely bound up with Him? That if God were to say to you, Why should I let you into my heaven? you wouldn't start comparing yourself to others. You wouldn't point to all the good things that you've done or how much you you have sacrificed. But instead, you would point only to Jesus' sacrifice in your place. Have your emotions been changed? Do you see Jesus as beautiful? It's one thing to to mentally affirm and say Jesus is the Son of God. But do you see him as beautiful? And has your mind been changed? Do you look at him and say truly this is the Son of God? If not then communion will be an empty ritual In fact it will be worse than that. It would be an eating and drinking of judgment on yourself. But if you can say I I know I don't always see him as I should. But he is more glorious and beautiful to me than anyone else. I realise I don't always do what he says but I want to more and more. I don't always think of him as highly as I should but I know he is the son of God then take heart that God has been at work in your life because left to yourself you would ignore him and when presented with his claims on your life you would despise and reject him and so come to the table that your faith might be strengthened if you haven't yet met with the elders then then do that before next time if you're a believer in Jesus Christ that you could come uh, and as Jesus is pictured in his word and symbolised in the bread and wine uh, that you might behold God's servant as even more glorious. Let this word also equip you to go back out into the world in the mission that he calls you to. Uh, The Bible calls us to go out with hopeful realism. Uh, Realism because we we, we realise, as we're we're told here, that the human heart by nature sees nothing attractive about Jesus. Uh, Maybe they they go after the Jesus of their imagination, but not the Jesus of the Bible. Uh, Knowing that and having that that. A sense of realism means that we'll be grieved when people respond but we'll not start to question whether it's true. But neither will we give up because it will also give us hope that the same Jesus who will be despised by some will also be seen as glorious by others. If we were left to ourselves, we would all despise Jesus. But God in his grace works in our lives to give us a glimpse of the wonder and glory of of his son so he's ignored he's despised but thirdly and finally this morning what we see when God opens our eyes he is exalted he is exalted we've seen the human verdict in God's servant but what is God's verdict well we don't need to read between the lines to work it out The song begins with it in verse 3. Behold my servant shall act wisely. Uh, There's a footnote in our Bibles which says it will also be translated as my servant shall prosper. Because the word really involves both these two aspects. And we don't have to choose between them. The same word refers to the success that someone achieves by their own actions. So though Jesus here is a failure in the eyes of the world, he actually completes the mission that God sent him to do. A bleeding man hanging on a cross, whose face is so beaten that he barely looks human. That that's nonsense in the world's eyes. It's pathetic, it's revolting. And yet in it the servant of God achieved exactly what God wanted him to achieve. That was the plan all along. However tragic it appeared to be, the most successful event in the history of the world was the death of Jesus Christ. And because of that, in the rest of verse 13, he is high, lifted up, and exalted. Some say this is referring to the three stages of Jesus' exaltation, his, his resurrection, his ascension, and then his sitting down at the Father's right hand. Uh, the main point uh, seems to be that Isaiah is heaping up words to describe just how exalted God's servant will be. And in fact, the most significant thing about these three words appearing together is that they are only combined four times in the whole Old Testament. The three other times they all refer to God. So God's servant here is described in language which is only ever used of God himself. the very word exalted tells us the same thing in chapter 2 way back there Isaiah had prophesied of how God would humble every exaltation of man and that only God would be exalted and so again this servant of the Lord can be no mere man the message of Isaiah is that only God will be exalted and that the suffering servant of the Lord will be exalted. So the suffering servant is God himself. The New Testament picks up in this passage in places like Acts 2, uh, where it describes Jesus as being exalted at the right hand of God. or, or especially Philippians two nine, where it says that because Jesus fulfilled his mission, because he humbled himself so low, because he was ignored and despised, that God has now highly exalted him. The same event which left Jesus so despised in the eyes of the world sees him raised up to this high point of honour in heaven. Maybe you wonder how the servant's mission can be a success if the reactions of heaven and earth are so different. If Jesus is ignored and despised on earth, how can he be described as successful? Well, Isaiah predicts that not all on earth will reject this message. Verse 15 says that Jesus will sprinkle many nations and that kings will shut their mouths because of him. Sprinkling in the Bible is used of water, blood and oil. It's a picture of cleansing or purification. It's one of the reasons that the sprinkling is sometimes used in baptism. And so this is a picture of Jesus cleansing many nations. Even if Jews reject the message, Gentiles will believe. Kings will shut their mouths before the true king. Paul quotes the last two lines of chapter 52 in Romans 15 to describe his mission to those who have never heard about Christ. The Jews who have been told of the Messiah don't see The ones who have heard about him don't understand. But in light of these verses, Paul is confident that those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. And that's still a a promise that we can hold on to today. Because our situation, our calling is similar to the Apostle Paul's. Uh, We live at a time when many of those who have been told uh, about Jesus have rejected and turned away from the message. But this verse holds out the hope that there will be those who have never heard the gospel before, who haven't been brought up with it, who haven't had the privileges that others have had, that they will see and will understand Uh, what hope uh, that gives us for this community those brought up without knowledge of this, without these privileges, that they will hear and understand that those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand and haven't we even seen that among us? But is it only the Gentiles who will be saved? What about the Jews or or what about their equivalent those who have been brought up in the church uh, up until now but have never believed is there no hope for them well who is it that's speaking here who are the us of verse 1 lamenting the fact that few believe their message Uh, well it's the same group who in one stage in verse 2 saw no beauty or majesty in Christ The spiritual past of the speakers is especially clear at the end of verse 3 when they say he was despised and we esteemed him not. So the speaker is an individual or a group of people who didn't believe. At one time they too looked at Jesus and thought he was a nobody. At one stage they too despised him but now they believe. The Jesus who once disappointed their earthly expectations of what the Messiah would look like now outdoes their expectations as they look for the Messiah who was promised. He's not the Messiah they were once looking for but he is the Messiah that God promised. He is the Messiah they need. And so even... If you're here today and you've heard this a million times before and never responded, that doesn't have to be the way it ends. The gospel isn't just for those who've never heard it before, uh, but it's also for those in here who've maybe heard it all their lives but never truly seen Jesus for who he really is. Maybe you came here this morning and you didn't think much of Jesus. You thought he wasn't worth an hour of your time, never mind your life. But you don't have to go home still despising or rejecting or ignoring him. But instead look at him as the Bible pictures him. The one who was prophesied. Who is ignored and despised by many. Just as those prophecies said. But even now is highly exalted. Look to him in faith. And you will see that he is more beautiful, majestic and glorious than you could ever have imagined. If you are a believer this morning, do you need to confess your low thoughts of your Saviour? Too often thinking of him in similar ways as the world around us does. Well, as you come to the table, think of him not just as hanging on the cross as though he were still there, but also as highly exalted and having received the name that is above every name and eat and drink in anticipation of that great day, when we will eat and drink at his heavenly table, when God's risen and exalted servant will be all and in all. Amen.